Hello, strong, feisty women. Some of you may recognize my voice. I'm Celine Yeager, host of the Hip Play Not Pause podcast. Throughout my career as a professional health and fitness writer and now a podcaster, I hear countless questions from women who are trying to understand how their ever-changing hormones impact their sports performance. So we decided to serve up some answers in a brand new series called Hormonal that we will be releasing on the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast feed. Throughout this four-part series, reproductive endocrinologist Dr. Carla DiGirolamo and I will be tackling topics like periods, the pill, pregnancy, and conditions like PCOS, all from the perspective of sports performance. If you aren't already, follow the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast and stay tuned for our first episode releasing on April 15th. Also, have questions you want answered? Send us a voice note at speakpipe.com slash hormonal and we'll get it answered on the show. You are listening to the Girls Gone Gravel podcast, a show for women who are chasing their everyday and epic adventures. This podcast is hosted by Christy Moan and me, Katherine Taylor, and powered by Feisty Media. Hey, hey, hey. Hi. I've never tried that before. I know. (laughs) That sounds like a me. I know. I don't know where that came from. Um, You look really tan. I do? Yeah. Well, I've been at the spa. I'm kidding. (laughs) Not even. How are you? I'm good. 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 I mean, I feel like we literally just recorded because we're getting ahead now. Yeah. Hey, all of y'all, we're ahead. <laughs> well, really, we'll hey, how long, our podcast how editors. Yeah, we'll see how long it lasts. But I know we're like getting lots of points for our effort right now. For, well, we're trying to catch up with Celine. That's what it really oh, is. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I think she's scheduled through October already. Oh, my God. I love that woman. I know. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, we've got things to talk about today. We do. Something I'm so excited about, which I actually just looked at the uh, document and there's so many nominees coming in. Oh, but this is really exciting. I think we mentioned it before, but this year, so uh, Feisty, which is a company that produces podcasts that I work for, has always done a summit called the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. And now it's the Outspoken Women in Endurance Sports Summit. And as a part of it, they've always done an award ceremony to celebrate women that are kind of kicking ass in triathlon, not for performance, but for the things they do behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And we've expanded it to all endurance sports with three gravel specific categories. Yes. So I love it. I know. I I mean, I've done a post on it on my Instagram. I know you've done a post on it. Um, I think all of you that are listening right now need to go and check that out. And fi- think of people that you know that you need to nominate, because that's that's how we that's how we make it better and bigger. Yeah. So we're just we're celebrating women that are contributing to the sport. So uh, there are categories like gravel cyclist of the year, um, race director of the year, coach of the year, and then other things like outspoken woman of the year. There have been yep. some good nominations coming in for that. Um, outstanding media contribution. Yeah, we don't know anybody that works in media. 
I saw all the people you nominated. I know I went through like I, I did my due diligence. And then as soon as I did that, I kept thinking of more and more people that I, I could nominate because there's just so many of us out there doing great jobs. But I think that's what's really important is that, you know, we all need to be participating and communicating and letting people know who's doing the work and let's recognize them. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's really easy to nominate. Mm -hmm. There's various places you can go, but I did put a link at the top of the Girls Gone Gravel website. So if you're listening to this podcast, you can be like, where do I go? Girls Gone Gravel website. You'll find it if you Google it or it's girlsgonegravel.com. And then there's a link at the top and it'll take you to the nominee page. And September 11th is your last day to nominate people. Please do it. Like just at least do one, at least one. Also, right now we're kicking triathlons ass. It's way more gravel cyclists than triathletes. Are we surprised? So, (laughs) all right. Anyway, well, uh, we are going to go on. We're going to finish that up and go on to our great interview today. We talked to dietitian Caroline Burkhalter all about diet culture and fueling and lots of great stuff. Nice. Catherine found the button on the first shot. And. And I knew how to say the guest's last name. Then go, you, you go on the first shot. We have Caroline Burkholder. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Got it. Ladies, (laughs) Catherine nailed it before we hop, before she pushed the record button. You nailed it that time. You just second guessed it. I I was like, oh wait, is it Holder or Holder? And then I was like, cause I wasn't looking at your Zoom name anymore. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, Caroline. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you guys. Yeah. So some of my Atlanta crew that's listening to this will recognize Caroline because they probably met her at some Sorella rides where we have talked about we met. I was like, well, probably at the brewery because that's mostly what I went to was the brewery rides or the brewery socials. (laughs) Um, But uh, you are a registered dietitian. I am. And you're also a cyclist. So why don't we start since it's a gravel podcast, why don't we start with your story? How did, how'd you get into cycling? What have you done in cycling? You just told us that you raced unbound. So yeah, give us, give us that scoop first, and then we'll get into all of our nitty gritty nutrition questions. Cool. Um, all right. So I've been in cycling for, I think, what am I? I'm 37 years. Um, I played college soccer. Um, and I feel like, like any college athlete, I got out of college soccer and was like, oh shoot, what do I do now? Um, so I got super into distance running, ran a couple marathons, like did that whole thing. Um, and then got very badly injured. Um, <laughs> like seems like the story of runners, <laughs> like anyone that tries to maintain their sport outside of college. I was actually playing in an adult, uh, soccer league and I got a gnarly high ankle sprain, broke my tibia, like really yeah. did it first. So I couldn't run for six months. So I got a bike because I didn't know what else to do. So I started riding bikes, then started like I was doing some swimming for rehab, have always been really comfortable swimming. So then I kind of went into did a little foray into triathlons for a little bit, did a half Ironman, realized I liked the long stuff and then uh, kind of went like nose to the grindstone into road racing for a while, um, got pretty into crits got in a gnarly crit crash, shattered my elbow. You guys are probably noticing a trend. Oh We're not riding with Carol. We're yeah. doing any physical activity with her. 
Absolutely not. <laughs> um, shattered my elbow. So then I shifted more to off-road stuff um, just because it felt safer than road. Um, so yeah, I did. I went through a pretty big gravel phase. I did, yeah, Unbound, um, like Southern Cross, Mulberry Mayhem, mm-hmm. like all the local stuff, a um, bunch of the Southeast gravel races. And then I moved to Knoxville where there's mountain biking everywhere. And now I really focus most of my time and energy on mountain biking. Nice. Awesome. When I lived in Knoxville, mountain biking was not that much of a thing there. They built a ton of trails in the last. I didn't know it was a thing until I literally like two weeks before we bought our house. And then we were like, I guess we'll just buy a house here because (laughs) biking subculture. (laughs) <laughs> that's awesome and a less much less busy city than atlanta oh god bless it okay well then you are also a registered dietitian and that's what we wanted to dig in a lot with with today so how did you get interested in that yeah so um i have probably a pretty similar narrative to many female college athletes i had a terrible coach who shared a lot of pretty destructive nutrition information with us as athletes, particularly with me, um, kind of always telling me I needed to not eat certain food groups and I would, I needed to lose weight to be faster. And, um, you know, a lot of that dialogue, like all the time. And I think when I was a junior, we had like a dietitian come talk to us and she was naming all the things that athletes need to be doing, like eating carbs and eating frequently and snacking and eating before practice and all that stuff. And I kind of had this like epiphany where I was like, oh my God. So like eating less does not necessarily equal performing better. So I got pretty into quote unquote nutrition research I think I went a little too far on the other side of the spectrum, got very into health, um, maybe a little too into health, kind of went down a little bit of the orthorexic tube for a while, um, learned that I wanted to go to school for nutrition, kind of to be a more nurturing voice for women, um, you know, someone that can give scientifically founded information that is also delivered in a nurturing and non-destructive way. Um So I kind of went down my own little disordered path for a while, found my way around, developed a much healthier relationship with food, found intuitive eating, and then got trained in, became a dietitian, got trained in how to actually like clinically treat presenting eating disorders and that primary eating disorder diagnosis. And how long have you been doing that? So I've been in practice for five years now, and I've been specializing in eating disorders for about three and a half of those. Wow. I bet you see some interesting stuff. <laughs> it's it's actually, yeah, it's really fulfilling work. Um, you know, a lot of people, they have been just in and out of the dieting vortex and the disordered eating vortex for so long mm-hmm. that by the time they make it to me, they're just so thankful that there's somebody that's like kind of gets what they're dealing with, that it ends up being like, pretty rewarding and, um, like fulfilling work. Yeah. I, I feel like pretty much every woman I know has some kind of disordered eating pattern. And a lot of it comes from our cultural emphasis on the, on looks and diet and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, disordered eating is definitely celebrated and 
I would even take a leap to say the default relationship with food is pretty disordered and you have to kind of intentionally seek out a non-disordered relationship with food. How, do, how does, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, so. Like, okay. And <laughs> <laughs> so we start with this conversation. <laughs> Yeah. But like, for real, what are some of the steps with that? Like, is it becoming aware? Is it like understanding what the messages of the culture? Like, what are some of the pieces of that? Yeah. Good question. It's kind of multidimensional, but I would say when people come into my office, um, a lot of times their stories, some of them have like, again, primary eating disorder diagnoses. Some of them are just like, Hey, I've had a really messed up relationship with food for many years, but the step one with anybody is all right. First, let's establish some consistent, regular eating patterns and get you eating enough. Um, one of the biggest complaints with disordered eating is that food takes up more bandwidth in your brain than you are wanting to give it. it takes up more psychic space. Um, people report like obsessing about food or obsessing about the food they feel like they can't have. And so, step one of resolving that issue is so simple, but it's literally eating enough because that obsession with food and that preoccupation with food, that is a survival mechanism. That is something that we have adapted in order to seek out food in famine. So if you think about hunter-gatherer days before we had unlimited access to food, if we were in a continuous caloric deficit, that usually meant we were in a famine. So in order to fight that um, like circumstance, your body increases, like your nervous system increases your attention to food. So you'll notice like if you're like in a super big deficit, you're really hungry and you walk into the break room at work and there's cookies, you're much more likely to like obsess over those cookies if you're going into it in that super big deficit. So very long-winded answer to your question is step one is getting someone to eat enough, getting someone to fuel regularly through the day, rather than a lot of times what we see is like nothing for breakfast, something small at like 2 PM for lunch, and then like a big dinner. And then like a bunch of snacks after dinner, we want to distribute that intake through the day so that it's actually matching when during the day you're most active. I'm just thinking I'm always hungry and I'm always thinking about my next meal. <laughs> I like if I can't wait to get to the breakfast table and then I can't wait to get to lunch. I can't wait to get to dinner. <laughs> and with athletes, it's tough because, and this is something we can talk about with red S is with athletes, it might not be intentional. It might not be you're trying to restrict your intake, but your needs are higher and your life is busy. And when your needs get to a certain point, in order to meet them, you have to really be like intentionally working on meeting them rather than just kind of like passively eating. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> I don't think my 20 minute CrossFit. I'm like, I'm like I, I can't keep chips in the house because like it's such a weakness. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I was like, go ahead, Catherine. Well, it is amazing to me because I've talked to several women within some of our, especially our menopause community. So not necessarily the gravel community, but that have started working with a dietitian and they're like, I'm actually under fueling so much. 
and and they start to fuel and they feel better and they actually start to lose weight when they eat more, which is so counterintuitive to everything that culture tells us about that. So I would say of the individuals that walk into my office, the vast majority of them are under eating. And that's not just people clinically presenting with anorexia. That's across the, like across the diagnostic spectrum. Um, most people are under eating and your body is really smart. So it knows, okay, if I'm not getting enough fuel easy, I'll just downregulate the metabolic processes that are energy demanding so that I can conserve energy because shit, we're in a famine. Yeah. Which then causes you to gain weight. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And like for, if, when you're cycling, so say if you're in a busy training season, like what are some of the consequences of if you are continuously underfueled? Good question. So there's kind of like, I would say echelons of like chronic underfueling in athletes. So let's say you've kind of just started, um, like kicking up your overall training load and you haven't been under fueling for too long. Your first signs are going to be irritability, thinking about food all the time, being crispy, <laughs> when you get like starving, when you get to your meals, uh, Christy, this is not meant to be a call out. No, I it's not to- a call. out. I like, I'm laughing because just to the amount of food that I literally eat, <laughs> it's like, I'm like, I can't eat more food. That's all I'd be doing. <laughs> a, a great sign is like, are there foods that you're like, if I'm around this, I am 1000% going to binge it. That's always a really good, <laughs> just like yellow <laughs> flag for, okay. I might be chronically underfueling. So that's kind of like stage mm-hmm. one. Um, more of those like psychological and behavioral symptoms. I would say stage two is you start to see your performance hurting. So I don't know if you guys are like data junkies. I am, unfortunately. Once upon a time when I did triathlon, I was much more, but okay. but we understand that. We understand the right. data lingo. Okay. So a lot of times people will come to me and be like, oh, Caroline, obviously I'm not training hard enough because I'm going to do my threshold intervals and I can't hit my power that I'm supposed to be hitting. And so you'll start seeing that increased frequency of like failed workouts. And I mean, for cyclists, for runners, when they're trying to do track workouts, um, you know, for like, you know, soccer players that are just not able to like last in the game for the same duration. Um, so that's kind of like step two, I would say, as you do start to see performance hurting, you see that increased frequency of failed workouts. You might see an increased frequency in just those nagging injuries. Um, and you might see like poor recovery from workouts. So if you typically can do sweet spot on Tuesday and be cool for temp or threshold on Thursday. Okay. Well, now you're starting to notice, like I'm having like a greater amount of like accumulated fatigue, um, week to week. Um, so that's always kind of like, I would say stage two. And then, you know, when we get into like the depths of chronic underfueling, that's when we'll see more of like the clinical presentation. So we'll see, um, amenorrhea or, um, dysmenorrhea. So either irregular or absent menstrual cycles, um, that drives a decrease in estrogen, which will drive a decrease in overall like bone density. 
Um, we'll see a lot of issues with constipation, um, people having just like persistent bloating when they do eat enough. Um, it's like, there's a statistic that like 95 to 98% of people with eating disorders have co-occurring GI distress. Um, and that also bleeds into people that are not maybe intentionally under fueling, but are under fueling. Um, so we see a lot of constipation, anemia can start to crop up, especially those that have like really, really high training volumes. It's easy to get like an athletic induced anemia. So you see, there's a lot of signs before this chronic underfueling shows up like at a doctor's visit. And I think that is really important because I think sometimes people think if they have either a tough relationship with food or if they just know they're not eating enough, okay, well, I went to the doctor for my yearly physical and everything was fine. So I guess I need to just toughen up. No, there's a lot of signs that crop up before we see those clinical presentations and actually getting to it before we see the clinical presentations is going to be a much easier fix. That's a lot. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I'm like, I took some notes. I'm like looking at my notes. <laughs> So we hear, uh, I think we were just talking about, there's been a couple of mountain bikers recently that talked about that they, it got to the point where it went into what's called red S, which that is really hard to come back from. So could you maybe talk about what that, what that is and how to recognize like, oh shit, I might be in this state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So red S was, so that's relative energy deficiency in sport. Some people call it red S, some people call it reds. Um, same thing if you hear those. Um, and that was actually born out of what was originally coined the female athlete triad in the 1990s. Um, female athlete triad still around, uh, red S is just kind of an expansion of that. So I'll talk about the female athlete triad first and then go into red S. So the female athlete triad is the interplay between low energy availability. So just meaning you're not eating enough calories in order to sustain your day-to-day -day activity. So you're kind of persistently in that caloric deficit, um, <clears throat> which leads to <laughs> menstrual dysfunction. And then that contributes to loss of bone mineral density. So those three things kind of thus the triad. Yes. thus the triad. Yeah. Um, Red S is an expansion upon that because of kind of what we were just talking about. Um, clinicians were starting to pick up on if we're so focused on menstrual dysfunction, bone mineral density, weakness. So things that come up when the disorder is really far along, um, then people are going to get missed if they're engaging in the behaviors that lead to this, but they're just not fat enough yet. So we'll have people, we'll see people that um, they are chronically underfueling, have been chronically underfueling, but they take like a hormonal birth control. So they do still get a regular period, which is um, like prompted by the birth control, not by an adequate amount of like estrogen and progesterone and all that. And so you'll like, that's one example. Another example is like some people just they have really, really strong bone density. So it takes a lot more loss to get them to that, like two standard deviation below what's normal, which would show up on like a DEXA scan as being like insufficient. So red S 
kind of came out of the female athlete triad as an attempt to increase the net that would catch athletes that are chronically underfueling. So another great thing about Red S is it does also include males um, because males are also, of course, not immune to underfueling and disordered eating and all of that. They don't know why, but for whatever reason, like men have a slightly like higher threshold for like having those, like, I guess, performance effects and clinical manifestations than women do. So women have largely been the focus of um, this research, but it does help include men and it includes some of those other symptoms that we talked about, like fatigue and irritability, gastric distress, anemia, um, cardiac, like irregularities it includes all of those things rather than just the three things in that triad. Um, so when people are starting to, you know, question, okay, am I possibly dealing with this? Some great like triage questions that someone could ask themselves or a writer could ask is like, are you thinking about food all the time? Do you feel like eating is a very stressful thing to you? are you intentionally avoiding a lot of foods? Are you unintentionally avoiding a lot of foods? Um, are you failing your workouts? Are you constantly fatigued even when you're having like a taper week or a, a recovery week? Um, those more like qualitative questions can be super helpful. Um, clinically, they haven't developed like a definitive instrument to assess for red S. I feel like one is probably coming. <laughs> But most providers have like a pretty good spidey sense for like, okay, this, this looks like red S just based on these behaviors that you're describing. Mm -hmm. So like if an athlete has gone down that train, that path or somebody's like, oh, this could describe me. Like, what are some things? Cause it's easy to say, just eat more. Right. But that's not like, there's a mental piece of that. That's so much so hard, especially if you're kind of ingrained in diet culture, like, of course, what do you do? Yeah. So I'm biased, of course, but you can always seek out a registered dietitian. Mm -hmm. That is a really good place to start. Um, just because you're right. Like even if there was no mental piece, drastically increasing your intake in a very short period of time is also going to lead to GI discomfort, constipation, bloating, all of that. So it does have to be kind of like a stepwise process. Um, so meaning with a dietitian, I feel like that is always a really helpful and guiding, um, like step in anyone's like food journey. Um, you can always bring it up with your provider, like whether that be a mental health therapist or a primary care physician or your OBGYN. Um, and they can usually like point you in the direction of referrals that can help you. Um, but I, I do kind of stand firmly by like, oftentimes this is something that like can't necessarily be accomplished alone. Um, I think one like eye-opening experience that people can do on their own is if you go online and you look up um, like a calculator that estimates your energy and expenditure for the day. So you can look up like the Mifflin St. Jor calculator. It's a, it's not infallible, like there's definitely a margin of error, but when you put in your activity level, if it's pretty high, you'll get a number that most people will see and realize like, 
I'm not even in the ballpark. Like I'm not even close. And so that can be kind of a helpful, like first line of defense. Like, are you even like, like grazing, um, like where you should be? Yeah. Well, and one of the things I recently learned is and you could tell me if this is true. I've never tried it, but that my fitness pal starts every woman at like 1200 calories. I have never met someone that's had a, like, that's had a nurturing or like restorative or curative experience with my fitness pal. It's 1200 calories is kind of an arbitrary number that was developed a very long time ago because it was determined to be the threshold that you could get like your full profile of like RDA, like your um, recommended dietary allowance of nutrients. So like, you know, you would in theory, get enough calcium, get enough protein, like an athlete's burn rate of those vitamins and minerals is so much higher for one. So that generalized recommendation is incorrect, but that is literally like what a three-year-old needs. I was going to say, I thought that's how much I was supposed to eat when I was on the bike. Yeah, no, <laughs> literally, yeah, exactly. Right. So 1200 calories is this like pervasive number that I feel like every woman in their life has at some point at least wondered, should I be eating this much? And or this so little. Much- or this little, yeah. Should I be- exactly. Should I be eating this little? Am-, am I eating too much because I'm eating more than 1,200 calories a day? And like you'll, ev- I feel like every single eating disorder professional has at some point or another taken a stand against 1,200 calories. But yeah, you're you're right, Catherine. I think that is Noom and... Um, my fitness pal both pushed that 1200 calorie threshold and it is way too low, especially for athletes, but even if you're not an athlete. To live your healthiest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. Inside Tracker takes a personalized approach to health and longevity from the most trusted and relevant source, your body. Inside Tracker was created by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT. It provides personalized health analysis and clear recommendations, plus an action plan on how to live a longer, healthier life. Inside Tracker can also calculate your biological age, which is the rate you're aging compared to your chronological age, as well as ways to lower your biological age. The thing we love most about Inside Tracker is that they give you recommendations on things you can control to optimize your health, like food, supplements, workouts, and other lifestyle choices. And did you know that you can use your HSA, HRA, and FSA to buy any Inside Tracker plan? Which means you can purchase Inside Tracker using your tax-free dollars. Oh, and it gets better. For a limited time, you get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store when you sign up. So if you're ready to get a crystal clear picture of what's going on inside your body, along with the science-backed recommendations to optimize what's not working, visit insidetracker.com slash feisty. That's insidetracker.com slash feisty. Yeah, I worked with a dietitian some this year. And one of the things I really liked is, and it was also mentally hard for me at first is she was very focused on like stacking habits which actually is better in the long term, right? But we're so conditioned to like mm. diet and extreme and like do this and this and this that it was really hard to go. You're making progress with these little incremental changes, which actually I'm like in my head, I know they're making me healthier, 
but they're not like this extreme that you see in culture, or every book you've ever read or every diet everybody gets into. So it's, it's a really hard shift, I think, in our minds. Yeah. I think the other thing we're not doing very well is, in all honesty, understanding that it's, it's a, it's a journey. Like none of it happens overnight. And I don't know, I like it, you're going to go up and down regardless of anything. Like, it's just, you know, COVID was a bitch for me. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, just getting back into regular healthy habits and just things like that, that I'm like, it's not, I'm not going to switch this overnight. I, I, I spent a year and a half screwing this shit up. So I got to, <laughs> I know. I jokingly say, I don't, I don't know if what's going on with my body right now was all my wine and cookies during COVID or if it's perimenopause. Probably it's both. a combo of both. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Karen, you make a really good point. Like it does feel really mundane to do some of these changes that are super impactful, but they don't have that gratifying, like really satisfying. I just accomplished something big. It's like when you like the difference between when you like do a full organization of your closet versus when day by day you like do the pretty mundane task of actually putting your clothes away. Like one feels a lot more satisfying than the other, but it's the actual putting your clothes away. That's going to keep the closet organized and like keep it a space that's livable and functional and usable. Um, but I think that is definitely something that people definitely struggle with in the anti-diet space too, is it's, it's slow work because exactly what you named, like we all did grow up kind of steeped in this messaging that we should be shrinking our bodies. We should be avoiding all these foods. And it takes a long time to like learn a different strategy. Well, I would love for you, uh, you've, you've been a cyclist, you've worked with cyclists for a long time. Like, tell us some of the big things that you see that you're like, I just wish I could tell, like, these are the big mistakes I see cyclists making. Yes. Oh my gosh. So excited. (laughs) So I feel like, okay. So the word binge eating, I feel like gets thrown around a lot. And sometimes we say binge eating and it's not truly a clinical binge, but for the purposes of simplicity, I'm going to use the word binge eating. I see a lot of people, cyclists specifically, who almost use like their long ride day, you know, like if you do a four to five hour ride on Saturdays or longer, um, they like use that day as, okay, this is the only day I'm allowed to have pizza. And they go bananas on pizza and they eat the whole thing. And then they feel like garbage and they're super bloated and constipated and all of that. But they have this idea that it's almost like, I guess, the cheat day mentality where it's like, I can only have these certain cheat foods on the days that I have quote unquote, like earned them. And then during the week, they eat in like more of a restrictive fashion, sometimes in kind of like a boring fashion. Um, and so they're never able to just enjoy a wide range of foods, like without it turning into a binge. So then they feel like, well, I can't have this food. I can't have that food because I can't like, I'll binge it if I don't eat it. And so like one of my favorite things to tell people to do or to recommend is 
you know, make a list of the foods that you feel like you have no power over. We need to build those foods into the week with other items. So for example, like if your food is Oreos, like every time you get around Oreos, you binge them. Okay. Well, how can we put those Oreos into the rest of your regular week so that they stop having, like they stop being mystified. They stop feeling like the forbidden fruit. And then we get this like adrenaline surge when we have them. So, you know, can we put those Oreos in like two Oreos and a banana right before you do your workout? Like that's actually a pretty good source of fuel. And over time you learn, like your body learns like, okay, I don't have to eat with this urgency whenever I get around this food or whenever I finally have permission to eat it. Um, so like the unconditional permission to eat foods is a huge part of kind of like the healing journey. When we talk about healing a relationship with food is we really do have to, for a period of time, like say nothing's off the table, no pun intended, because that is the only way that we can develop that like neutral view of foods and not feel like this primal drive to like binge on them when we do finally like allow ourselves to have them. Sounds like Christy's going to get some chips for her house. <laughs> I, I, in fairness, I do have them and I <laughs> put them in a bowl, but it's like, that's just, a, I, I love chips, jalapeno well, lace chips. You just know that like, <laughs> I think if I see five clients in a day, at least four of them have that exact same story. So you are yeah. not at all an anomaly with that. No. And I'm just, it's, it's been a weakness my whole entire, you could put a plate of Oreo cookies and I'd walk past it a thousand times not interested. French fries and Lay's jalapeno chips. I love French fries. I think that used to be a big one that when I was a bit more in my disordered space, I would like eat French fries if I had a long run day. And I would go again, bananas on them because I'd be like, well, I can't have them the rest of the week. I'd only have them today. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then I'd feel awful. No, I'll eat more if I have a big ride, but normally I'm just like, but I, I really, I prefer that my friend get French fries and then I just eat half of them. <laughs> I have one friend that's like, these are my fries. You cannot touch them. That's <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. I think that's true. I could see that like in, in my own life. I'm like, oh, we can't have these foods or they're bad. But then when you kind of like, like I love ice cream mm-hmm. in the summer, mm-hmm. I want an ice cream treat. I'm like, yeah. I just have it in my house. It kind of takes the power away from it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the goal. The goal is like, we want to choose to eat the food rather than the food kind of decide for us that we're going to eat it. Um, And again, like these are, these are things that everybody deals with and it's a pretty normal food behavior. And it's kind of nice to know like, okay, there's like ways to kind of work around this and heal from this. Um, So some people are like, I, you know, they legitimately do want to lose a little weight when they come to cycling. They're using that as an exercise outlet. Like what are some healthy ways to do that? If you're like, I do want to like lose weight from health reasons or whatever reasons, personal reasons, and, but do it in a healthy way while I'm engaging in this activity where I actually do need to fuel my body for it, because that's where we get messed up. Right. We're like not understanding we need to fuel, Mm -hmm. um, for what we're doing. Um, And so just end up chronically under eating, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't do any weight loss counseling specifically because it intrinsically puts the focus on the outcome rather than the process. And I'll kind of talk about that. So 
if somebody came to me and was like, Caroline, I've got a history of like diabetes, pre-diabetes in my family. I want to take up cycling and I want to lose some weight. What should I do? I would recommend we focus on the health behavior that is going to improve that health outcome being like lower A1C to reduce the risk of developing diabetes. So we would talk about all of the interventions that we encourage for reducing A1C and getting blood sugar regular, which is things like, you know, when you eat carbs, can we pair protein with them? Can we pair fiber with them so that that release on your blood sugar is more stable? Can we keep ourselves from getting too hungry so that we don't overeat when we do eat? Can we make sure we're fueling really well on our long ride so we don't get into that massive deficit and then like, again, super overeat later? Um, interventions, just hit, like um, scientifically, tend to be much more effective when they are behavior-based rather than weight loss-based. Because if I have someone come to me and they're like, I want to start cycling to lose weight. Well, if they start cycling and it's hard and it's hot and the weight loss doesn't happen for a while, it's really demotivating to keep cycling. Whereas they come and they say, I want to start cycling because I want to like, I want to lower my blood pressure. My, I want to lower my like resting heart rate, or I want to sleep better. I want to have a better mood. Those changes are much quicker. Um, they're much more like on, you know, from a day-to-day -day basis noticeable. And so they tend to keep people doing them. Whereas typically like interventions that are targeted around weight loss, they do just tend to fail like on a, like on the short term. And so to answer your question in short, like kind of coming back around, I would probably like dive into that question a little more and say, okay, you want to get healthier. What specifically, like what health outcome are you targeting? Let's come up with a specific intervention that targets that health outcome. Yeah, I like that. Makes I think sense. The, the emphasis has been way too much on weight, and especially in cycling, right? There's kind of this idea that the lighter you are, um, the better you could ride. And that now we're seeing like, that's actually not necessarily true because you can lose power. You can, you know, mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I think I think the frustrating thing that I I see, especially with some of the women that are approaching this from a, from a weight loss journey is that they'll go on a ride and because they went and rode their bike for an hour and a half, think that they can then have a burger and fries. I'm like, wait, that, I mean, you're not approaching it the right way. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Like not making that your cheat day. Uh, or like, can we have a burger and fries because we want to have a burger and fries rather than I've earned this. Therefore I That's get the, it's the earning statement there. Yeah. yeah. That bank account mentality around eating. Like I have expended this many calories. Therefore I earned this many calories. Um, just usually lends itself to people engaging in some just pretty pathological eating behaviors for sure. Um, but I think it's, I think, you guys make a really good point too. Like in those sports that do tend to be weight dependent, sometimes there's definitely something to be said for working with our genetic blueprint. Like I was a college soccer player. I got massive thighs. Like my ass ain't never going to go out and win Southern cross, but I can like <laughs> smash cyclocross. I can smash it at the track. 
like work with what you're good at too. Like work with what you're kind of predisposed to be good at. Like, you know, if you are someone that tends to hold on to a little bit more fat, okay, cool. Do super long endurance stuff. Or I mean, if that's something you want to do, don't do it just because that's what your body type lends to. But, you know, a lot of times we do have to kind of adjust our goals based on what we are like physiologically predisposed to be good at too. Yeah. Um, Well, that's like, I think we, that comparison trap, especially because we have a big menopause community and I'm like, oh, a lot of this that's happening with weight gain and menopause has to do with genes, right? Like yeah. your mom was always skinny. Like maybe your body composition changes, but you're going to, you know, and like some people gain, like, I'm like, I look at my family. It's all like stout Germans. <laughs> like, even though I'm tall and I've always been kind of fit, I'm like, there's just, I'm never, I'm not going to always be that wiry. I'm never going to be that wiry thin, tiny person, right? Like, genetics plays a huge role in your body type. I mean, it's so interesting when you look at someone and you look at their families and like, yeah, they don't have the exact same body type, but you'll see like, you know, some families tend to have really long torsos. Some families tend to really, you'll see a mom and a daughter and they both have hella long legs. Um, And, you know, we do kind of, there are body composition shifts that can happen, especially if we do change our eating habits a little or change our like workout routine a little, or if we switch from one type of workout to another, but like largely speaking, um, our body comp or our body type is going to stay pretty stable. Well, um, we could probably ask you like a million more questions <laughs> about all of this. Uh, but I do want to get into like, so you said you specialize, uh, and folks that have eating disorder, eating disorder patterns, like if, um, like who's your ideal client, like with, especially with the athletic community, if somebody's listening to this podcast and they're like, should I reach out to Caroline? Like, who's your, who, who do you like to work with? And kind of what, what do you, how do you help them? I guess you've kind of gotten into that a little bit, but, um, just, I I think like going to a a dietitian sometimes is scary. So like break down the stigma. What does that look like for us? It's super scary. And Catherine, you named, um, one of your friends who started seeing a dietitian or someone started seeing a dietitian in menopause and they were like, Oh my God, I started eating more. That's often what happens when you see a dietitian. I think people have this like conceptualization of the dietitian as like the food police. Like, well, you can't eat that, that, and that good luck. See you in two weeks. So my (laughs) client are women. I pretty much only work with, I have a couple men on my caseload, but um, usually about like ages 30 to 50, I would say, um, is like the majority of the people that seek me out. I work with a lot of college students too. Um, but I love seeing women kind of that 30 to 50 range who are oftentimes like individuals who have been kind of on and off diets for a long time. And when I say diets, I don't necessarily mean Atkins Weight Watcher, but kind of on and off that constant train of, I need to be losing five pounds. I need to be cutting something in order to like reduce my body weight. Um, so people that have been kind of on that train for so long and are continuously like finding that they're fatigued and they're irritable and it's not working for them and they're obsessed with food and all this stuff, um, and are kind of ready to like figure out something that's going to be sustainable and also like a little bit more forgiving, like. I don't need you like tracking your food to the gram on my fitness pal. Um, so those are kind of individuals that I feel like tend to seek me out. 
Um, just because my work, you know, I, I do spell it out very clearly too on my website. Like I don't do intentional weight loss and I don't prescribe any kind of like rigid meal plan aimed to prompt like rapid weight loss. So I think I suss out a lot of those people like before they even call me. Um, but you know, people that have kind of a disordered relationship with food, many of these individuals have moms that have been on diets their entire lives or moms that have encouraged them to be on diets forever. Dads who have always been talking about dieting. They've just been kind of steeped in diet culture for a long time. Um, and they are ready to just like give up the food fight and like find peace with food. Um, kind of how I help them is a, we start off with just like figuring out how can we eat more and consistently and frequently, um, to actually get our physiologic needs met because we can't work on kind of challenging those food fears or relying on hunger fullness or internal cues without first having those physiologic needs met. That's kind of like step one. Um, then we start to, and we'll do more of the functional and like practical stuff, like, you know, meal planning, here's some meal ideas, that kind of stuff. That's usually a part of the first couple sessions. Um, then once that's kind of done, then we start to talk about like, all right, some of these food beliefs, like which ones of them are serving you and which ones of them are not. Um, and we talk about, you know, what foods have always been off limits or what foods have you always avoided? Some of them people might say like, no, I avoid this because I really, it doesn't feel good for me. Okay. We'll keep avoiding that. But some of these things, like let's talk about working them back in. Um, and we call that kind of like food challenges, reintroductions, um, with the long goal, long-term goal for almost all my clients being intuitive eating, which is a massive beast. And one that we probably need a whole podcast to talk about, but, um, you know, getting people to the point where they really don't have food rules. They're choosing healthy food choices and they're fueling their bodies, but they're also not driven by this like constant internal critic telling them like, you, you know, you fucked up again. You got to start your diet again tomorrow or, oh, I blew it. So I might as well just binge because I ruined everything, that kind of thing. Um, you know, the goal is to neutralize those foods long-term. Well, um, I love your process and it sounds like you're a great fit for somebody that's maybe like really wants to change their relationship with their thought process and their, the way they eat. And so, um, where can people find you if they want to, if they want to do that? Um, let's see here. So I, my practice is called rooted nutrition and counseling. Um, I'm on Instagram at root underscore ed nutrition. Um, my website is rooted nutrition and counseling.com, or you can just Google my name, Caroline Burkholder, and it should come up there too. Awesome. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes and thanks so much for taking time to chat with us today. This has been really great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was so fun. You have been listening to the Girls Gone Gravel podcast. This podcast is edited and produced by the team at Live Feisty Media. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating. It really helps other women find the podcast. And be sure to follow us at Girls Gone Gravel on Instagram or Facebook.